God, I just uh, thank you for the chance to get to open up your word. And I pray that as we do, you would just help us to see what's in it. Would you help us to have open eyes and ears and hearts? Even today as we're talking about the things that we're talking about, Lord, would you help us to feel the things we're talking about? Because we're not just passive observers. We're not just reading an instruction manual or putting together a table, even putting together our lives, and the Bible can kind of help us with that, Lord. We are observing and peeking into today, really experiencing today the depths of reality and the depths of your love for us, the depths of our sin, but even more than that, the depths of forgiveness. And so God, help us to experience that and to feel it. But God, we we stand before your open word, but I also pray that each of us, we would open our lives to you right now. That Lord, not only would would we read your word, but Lord, we would let your word read us. That we would just be honest and open before you right now with nothing to hide because you see it anyways. And God, just speak to us where we need to hear it today. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, I was uh, taking a road trip uh, with my whole family. And for those of you who are really, I'd say, 20 years, 21, 22 and under, back in those days, we did not have iPhones. We didn't have iPads. We did things like books on tape. I, you may not even know what a cassette tape is at this point in your life, but we had these little cassette tapes. We'd listen to books on tape. We would read books if we could. We would get to the point where you're playing games like Count the Barns that are on your side of the car. Anyone ever done something like that? If you do trees, then it's next level, right? Because you're like literally every little tree kind of a thing. So yeah, so we're just doing this kind of stuff to pass the time. My brother and I are in the back of a station wagon. And at one point, we're just kind of playing around, making some noise and starting to annoy, particularly my dad. And uh, you're laughing because you're like, Jim, you've been there before. <laughs> you, you remember these memories even as you had your kids in the car. So yeah, we're, we're talking, we're making a lot of noise. My dad would occasionally correct us and everything. Well, um, eventually it kind of persisted. And as it persisted, dad volume increased in intensity and um, at one point he just lost it and just started yelling at us I mean and just letting us have it and even just a little bit of a context um, my dad has been very open as he's gotten older about how he really dealt with a lot of anger issues um, uh, growing up and then as he was a young parent and so he just unleashes on us but what he did not know is one of the things that we were playing with was a tape recorder (laughs) you kind of know where this is going Uh, and then all of a sudden a few minutes later after he's gone this tirade we just push play and we didn't do this out of malice I promise you we like this is not out of malice I think I was like four or five at the time you know I hope I hope my heart wasn't that you know cunning at that young age but seriously we just push play and then all of a sudden he heard his voice and he was just broken he, I talked to him this past week about it just to get his permission to tell that story, by the way. And he said shortly after that was even even more the breaking point for him where um, my brother was three years older and he was getting on to him and again, just kind of um, correcting him, but just using, you know, really just harsh voice. But then what happened was the door opened all of a sudden. They were in the room, the door opened and out of the bathroom mirror across the hall, he saw his face and just broken. Have you ever had a moment like that? Maybe it wasn't a tape recorder or a look in the mirror, but have you ever had a moment where you just came face to face with your own sin? 
and you just realized it. Maybe it was when you got married and you realized how prideful you were and self-centered you were, or when you had kids and you realized that. Um, Maybe it was just an ongoing struggle with a particular sin, maybe even to the point of an addiction, and you just had this realization where you came face-to-face with your own sin. Uh, You know, we're going in this series called Further Up, Further In, and the idea of the series, it comes from the Psalms of Ascent. It's it's these psalms that pilgrims would sing to God on their way up to Jerusalem, but we're using it kind of as a metaphor and as an analogy for our journey with God through this life, as we're walking with God and walking ultimately to the point where we get to spend eternity with God, and it's their journey we're on together. Well, here's just what I know after 38 years of living, and it's that as you're on this journey with God, you are going to sin. Like, I can tell you right now, I haven't spent time with you each of, the, each of you this past week, but out of everybody in this room, I would be comfortable to say that each one of you has at some point sinned, probably in the last hour or two. But like, even I'd say comfortably in the last week, we're all batting a thousand for those of us who've sinned. And so the question is, as we walk with God through this life, well, what do we do about that? Man, when we fail, and then even, yes, when we feel the conviction for our sin, like what do we do with that as we're ongoing walking with God? Well, the text that we are going to look at this morning, Psalm 130, you can go ahead and be flipping there, Psalm 130, the writer of the psalm faced a moment of conviction, like my dad and like many of you, and he had came face to face with his own sin, and he's going to invite us to two responses then to our sin as we walk with God through this life. Psalm 130 is one of six or seven what's called penitential psalms. These are psalms that an individual would write about their own sin or maybe the sin of the entire um, nation of Israel, just coming face to face and coming to grips with it and then asking God for forgiveness. And we're going to take a look at it together. But here's what I want us to do, though. Um, I, I said there's two things that I believe the psalm is inviting us to. I want to focus on each one at a time because I really want us to feel the full weight of each, and the full magnitude of each. And so normally what we would do right now is we'd stand and we'd read through the whole psalm, but I'm actually going, only going to have us read the first three verses together. So let's all stand and read God's word together. Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You may be seated. So throughout the last 2,000 years, Psalm 130 has actually been a favorite of multiple people throughout the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Um, even maybe to highlight a few of them for you, in the late 300s, early 400s, this is one of the favorite psalms of a man named Augustine, who is one of what a lot of people would say was the greatest of the early church fathers. Augustine was from North Africa and from a very pagan background. He just writes at one point how he enjoyed living in his errors and in his sin as much as he possibly could. Loved it, but at one point, God gripped his heart, changed his life and the trajectory of his life, and he fell in love with this psalm. So just remember, because I'm going to give you some backgrounds of each of these. So you've got Augustine, late 3rd, early 4th century, North African pagan. Then if you fast forward over about 1,100 years, you get a guy named Martin Luther. 
German, so completely different culture. Unlike uh, Augustine, he had a very religious upbringing, and he always wanted to try to do everything he could to please God, and he never felt like it was enough. Very religious guy. Like, he would go to confession, and when he was a part of the Catholic Church, multiple times a day to the point where the people receiving his confession said, stop coming. Like, they literally said, dude, come back to us when you've got a sin actually worth confessing. Because he felt like every little thought and every little thing he did was so tinged with sin, he had to go confess it and confess it and confess it because he was afraid if he didn't, he would be damned to hell. So you've got Luther, and then guess what? Once he, once he gets a hold of Jesus and the grace of Jesus, more importantly, gets a hold of him, this becomes one of his favorite psalms. You go forward 100 years, 150 years, you've got a guy named John Owen, English. So we're in a totally different... Um, country now, and throughout this whole time, you've got different systems of thought, different cultures that are involved in this, but John Owen is gripped by this psalm. He writes um, sermons on this, and the sermons, when they put into a book form, are over 400 pages long on just this one little psalm. You go 100 years now, again, into the future, you got John Wesley. So again, very different culture. The early days of the Enlightenment are there. He's also from England, though. Eventually, though, spends a lot of time in America as an evangelist. He actually came over to America to be a missionary and to bring the gospel to different tribes and people that were in America. But he had this moment where he realized he didn't even think he was saved. He basically said something along the lines of, oh, Lord, I've come here to save these people, but who's going to save me? And again, at one point, he reads Psalm 130, and on that, later that same day, he is saved. But what is it about this psalm that people from all different cultures, from all different parts of the world, North Africa, Europe, over even end into parts of America, what is it about this that has gripped people throughout the last 2,000 years? It's that it addresses the fundamental, ultimate problem that we all have. That's your sin. It's your sin. The fundamental problem that each of us has that this psalm addresses and why people throughout the ages of all different cultures and backgrounds and persuasions fall in love with the psalm is because it ultimately addresses the fundamental problem each of us has, and that is our sin. Now, if I'd have said that 25, 30 years ago, I think most people in culture would probably have agreed with that, but nowadays, more and more, you don't really hear the word sin, and people don't really feel this sense of guilt that people used to feel over that. But here's what I believe is I actually believe people still do believe in sin, even if they don't call it that. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but like, I've never lived or seen a culture that was more harsh, more critical, more ready to cancel you if you say or do one thing that's wrong. So still people, people still very much believe in right or wrong, but here's what they believe. They don't believe that it's so much within them. They believe it's outside of them. They believe it's outside of them that they could never be the one to be the one who's sinning against other people. That's the other thing I'd say is now sin is mostly against me and against others. It's not against God. But people don't believe it's inside of us. They believe it's outside of us. It's what I call the Taylor Swift syndrome. Okay, Taylor Swift has written a lot of breakup songs over her life. It's always the other guy's fault. But if I ever had a chance to talk to Taylor, I'd say, Taylor, you're the only common denominator in all of your breakup songs. (laughs) I'm not saying it's all your fault. I'm just saying you're part of the problem. And so I I think all of us know that the world is broken, that the world has evil and injustice in it. People just don't want to come to grips that actually that evil is also within them. But everyone believes in it. In fact, even let me do one more thing, and this will even lead us then back into our text. Um, Imagine for a moment, if everything you ever said, if everything you've ever felt, 
If everything you've ever thought, if everything you've ever done, or the things that you should have done that you haven't done, imagine for a minute that it was all published on social media, the internet, and it was just out there for the world to see. You probably immediately got cringy a little bit, got a little nervous that everybody would just have every bit of information on you. And I think everyone feels that way. What that tells me is that we all know that there's a sense of right and wrong, and we all know that we're accountable for it to somebody. What this text is going to show us is actually we are accountable, but it's not ultimately to ourselves or to each other. It's ultimately to the God who created us. Christians believe that, man, like all believe there is right and wrong, but ultimately the one we're ultimately accountable to is the God who created us. And that's why our writer is in the depths. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Listen to the pleas for mercy. But then the reason he's crying this is because if you see in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, should mark my sins, that means if you held me accountable for everything I ever have felt, thought, said, and done, who could stand? Um, That word depths is often used to describe the ocean, and the ocean even maybe the deepest part of the ocean in the Bible. It's a place of alienation from God. And so often in the Psalms, it talks about how God is in the highest heavens. But here he's saying, I'm as far away as I can possibly get. He feels like he's on the ocean bottom, as far away from God as possible because of his sin. I also love this word, the depths, because it reminds me of a few uh, weeks ago, and even a few years ago, I was doing a little bit more research on the Mariana Trench. I hope I said that correct. I always almost say marinara trench, but that's like an Italian sauce. And so, um, just being honest, I, I was like practicing it yesterday. I'm like, Paul, don't screw this up. You're trying to make a really big point out of this. Don't screw it up. I just kind of highlighted that I did, but it's all good. So, the Mariana Trench, right? Deepest part of the ocean floor. 36,000 feet deep. So for perspective, you could put Mount Everest in the Mariana Trench and there'd still be over a mile of ocean above it. Deep. And at that deep, the weight is crushing. Over a thousand pounds of force, thousand times greater force, I should say, than at the ocean surface. So to kind of even just like get our heads around it, it would be the equivalent if I laid 50 jumbo jets on top of you. The weight down there is crushing. And so the the psalmist is saying, the weight of my sin is crushing me. Because he realizes, wait a second, if, and we're going to come back to that if here. If, Lord, you should mark all of my sins, it would crush me. Now, that if doesn't mean that he doesn't, that God doesn't know all of our sins. Because actually, look in the book of um, Revelation. Actually, you don't have to look. It's going to be there for you on the screen. Revelation 20, 12 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of of God. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So this is a picture of the end of days when everybody is going to stand before God and God is going to open up the books and everything we've said and done is going to be open there before him. Now again, we're going to come back to the if here of why it ties into verse 4, but we'll come back to that in a bit. But just imagine me for a second. I've got a little um, kind of thing up here. I have these documents that I kind of created. Mine has my name on them, Paul Cunningham. This is years 24 through 27 of my life. So um, I didn't have enough paper. It cost too much money. So I just did a few years here. Um, Imagine for a second if all of our sins were just written down. Everybody remember this old school paper with the nice little tear off on the end? Anyone remember like the green and white lines? That, like, I, I swear like that's all we used when we were kids. Oh, thank the goodness for technology advances. I was even surprised this still existed. It was awesome though because I could use it for a sermon illustration. So just imagine. And actually what I want to do for a few minutes is 
can we go to the depths together? That doesn't sound fun. You're like, nah, I really don't like to do that. <laughs> but like, can we go to the depths of our sin together f- for a minute? Can we seriously imagine if all of our iniquities were marked out by God, not in the sense that they were recorded, because we see in the book of Revelation they are, but if God actually held us accountable for him? I want us to consider just three things for a few moments. The quantity of our sins, the quality of our sins, and the severity of our sins. Just think about for a second just the quantity of your sins. Everything you've ever thought, said, felt, or done that displeased God. Everything you should have done that you didn't do. Just imagine if they were all recorded. You're like, Paul, can I come see yours? No, you cannot. These are years 24 through 27. Those are pretty good years, but still just imagine if they were all written down, even from this past week of how it would go on and on and on and on and on. Just all the sins of our lives written down. But now let's move on even just from the quantity, because I think we all get that. I think we can just, if we really were self-reflective enough, I think we'd understand how much we blow it all the time. But think about the quality of our sins. And I mean specifically when I say the word quality, uh, the word quality can mean the unique attribute or characteristic of them. And what scripture tells us is that our sin is ultimately rebellion against the cosmic creator. So our sin, therefore, is cosmic treason against the cosmic creator. So every little lie that I've said, every time I've rooted for the New England Patriots, that's never happened for the record, uh, but seriously, though, like every little thing, great, small, medium, in between, wasn't just a white little lie, wasn't just a little mistake or a little mess up. It was me saying to the cosmic creator of the universe, no. I, I think I've said this before in a previous sermon, but if, do, you, do, you, do you realize that there's only two Things in all of God's created order that have the audacity to tell him no. Demonic forces in us. <laughs> yeah, you almost have to laugh because it's like, oh, it's like a nervous laugh even. It's like, okay. Like, so like all the quantity of our sins at the heart of all of them is us saying, God, no. I want to be God. Now I want us to just ponder for a minute the severity of that. The severity of our sins. Now, when I say severity, I don't even necessarily mean like the worst sins of your life. Like we all have the deepest, darkest moments of our lives that like if you even call to your mind right now, like what's that moment for you that you think is just the darkest moment of your life where you just blew it the worst? Like I think we could all call that to mind right now. But like I would even say the severity of our sins isn't just like the offense level of a specific sin. So obviously like, you know, you think of things like murder. It's awful. But even like the smallest of our sins are so severe because the severity of our sins and our offenses isn't just based on the thing itself, it's based on who it's done towards. Here, here's what I mean. I'm actually going to put this down for just a second. Like, um, uh, if I came up today and hit you in the face, not going to, but if I did that, I would probably be arrested. I'd be charged with assault, you know, would face probably a fine, spend maybe a few months in jail, potentially kind of a thing, okay? So if I hit you, that's assault, it's physical assault, it's bad but maybe a few months in jail. If I then, what if I went up today and I punched the president of the United States in the face? What do you think happens to me? You never see me again. I'm in like Guantanamo Bay in some prison cell and you never see Paul Cunningham again. And I think we all get that and realize it because the severity is not just what you do, it's who you do it against. Now, take me hitting the president, multiply at times infinity, Carry that to the 10th power and you begin to approximate the severity of every single little sin against God. 
And so the psalmist is just saying, if you, God, kept a record of all that I did and all the times I rebelled against you, an infinite God, who could stand? And the answer is no one. No one. Not the greatest person in the world, the people that sometimes we think of throughout the last 100, 150 years as just paragons of virtue. Mother Teresa. If you're not even a Christian here, you think of like maybe people like Gandhi. But here's what I'm saying. No one would stand before God if they had literally just had everything they'd ever done stood before him. I, I, what I'm hoping we're beginning to feel, and I literally mean feel, not just know, but feel is the weight of our sin. I hope it's beginning to like this sense of like, oh, because even like think about what I just did. Like just imagine like you see it and you just start to crash on because then that's the who could stand no one if you stood before God like that. Now, here's the thing. We've been in the depths together for a few minutes. You want to go to the heights with me? Because the psalm doesn't end here. It's about to completely change. We don't have to stand again. I'm just going to read the next line, and you're going to see how everything now begins to change. So yes, if all of my sins were held in front of me, and God actually held me accountable for them, I would be crushed. I'd have no chance. But then look at the next verse. But. I can't even finish it yet. But. So that's like, you know how amazing of a word that is? Like the idea of, a, like think, even think in a sentence, but cancel out, cancels out or changes everything that just came before it. So our team was down by 20 at halftime and our quarterback was injured. So it seems hopeless, but the backup quarterback led him to victory, cancels out everything. I told my wife that her outfit did not look great today, <laughs> but I made her a chocolate lava cake. And everything was forgiven. But it's like, but changes everything. So all that came before here was true, but we're about to see how it is now canceled out. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So yes, I do have the weight of all of my sins. And listen, this sin must be paid for. In the Bible, sin has to be paid for. That's why when you read there is forgiveness, don't think of forgiveness like God just waving his hand or acting like, ah, it doesn't really matter that much. No, sin matters to the point where God in the Bible and in creation requires that a life be paid for your sin. I guess that's serious. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, I think it says this so clearly. In Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, so, so when the psalmist is saying, but with you there's forgiveness, he's not saying, ah, like it would be crushing, ah, but it's really not that big a deal. No, he's saying like, there is forgiveness, but that forgiveness in the psalmist's mind is tied to a price must be paid for all of this. In the Old Testament, that price was the blood and the life of bulls and goats and rams and lambs. But what we see now that we live post-Jesus is ultimately God the Father sent the Son. Jesus, the Son of God, comes in the flesh and gives his life for us. And because of that, there is forgiveness. Let's just ponder this for a minute, okay? The weight of our sin is crushing, but Isaiah 53, 5 says that Jesus was crushed for our sins and iniquities. The debt of our sin is greater than we can possibly pay, but Colossians 2 says that Jesus then paid that debt. Let's read it together. You, all of you, individually, 
You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, meaning Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Well, how did he do that? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in other words, there is all of this stuff, all of your sin, the quantity, the quality, the severity of it. God sees it and it must be paid for. Jesus comes and on the cross, he takes your sin and he writes on there the debt that you owed, paid in full with his blood. And because of that, there is and can be forgiveness for anyone who repents and follows Jesus. Isn't this good news? Like, this is the gospel. And I hope now that you're beginning to feel like, oh, we were in the depths, but now we are going to the heights. I even just imagined, I was, I was walking around the last couple of days, like, I just imagined an imaginary conversation between the angels, or maybe even like Satan himself, and, and Jesus. And he just says, like, Jesus, do you know the quantity of the sins of all these people? Yes, I know them past, present, and future. I know the sins that Pete, that Jim, that anyone in this room is going to commit that they don't even know about yet. I expect worse from them than they do from themselves. I knew them all before I laid my life down, and I still did it. Well, Jesus, like, do you know the quality of their sins, of how they are like your enemies, of how Scripture itself says that like, people who are living in sin are your enemies? Yes, and that's why I died for them. Jesus would say, I became, Jesus would say, I became the enemy of God so that the foes of God would become the friends and family of God. That was the whole point. Well, like, Jesus, do you know, like, the severity of their sins, of how, like, it's infinitely great against you? How can you possibly forgive that? Well, I'm glad you asked, Satan, because, actually, I gave them my infinite righteousness. Second Corinthians says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is infinite because God is infinite. It's the gospel. It's good news. We're in the heights now. Okay, so, like, what do we do? Like, how do we put these together? Because remember when I opened up, I just said, okay, like, this text helps us know how we need to respond when we, when we sin and when we face moments of conviction. Well, we said the text invites us to feel the weight of our sin, but it also we've really been hitting on, number two, how the text invites us to receive the forgiveness of our God. So we need to feel the weight of our sin, but we also need to receive the forgiveness of our God. So what does that look like? I, I'm a visual guy, um, and so I kind of put a drawing together. It's a little cheesy. I'm going to own it, but it helps me, and I hope it helps you. I've got a little picture up here that we're going to put up, especially since we're doing further up, further in. Uh, we've got some trees and mountains we're going to go into, and so really what this road represents is this idea of this walk with God. The reason there's a cross at the beginning is because I'd say this. If you were here and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, if you want to walk with God, not only in this life, but for forever, you first have to do that through the cross. The cross is where you find forgiveness for your sins. There is no walking with God apart from walking with Jesus. And first going to the cross and feeling the weight of your sin and realizing, I cannot pay for this, but then realizing Jesus paid for it. And you go to Jesus and say, forgive me. I want to walk with you. And then you get on the road. 
But then um, earlier this week, I encountered this great text, Titus 2, that to me so describes well this whole process. It says, the grace of God has appeared. And then we're going to put the picture back up on the screen. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to people. So Jesus came. He brought salvation that's getting on the road, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the drawing now. So the picture of this is we get on the road, and then God calls us to live godly lives when we're on the road. But you know what the reality is? We're not always going to get that right. And even the best of us, even the people who have the most passionate relationship with Jesus, they're going to fail. And when they do... I believe this is what you need to do. You need to feel the weight of your sin and realize that it is infinitely serious. Don't blow it off. God did not. God took your sin so seriously, he sent Jesus to die for it. So don't take it lightly. But then once you realize your sin, confess it to Jesus, you receive the forgiveness, and then you get up and keep walking. Let's put it like this. In the Christian life, you get up the same way you got on. You got on the road through the cross where you felt the weight of your sin. You confessed to Jesus. You received forgiveness. You got on the road. On the road, then as you're walking, you get up the same way. You realize your sin. You confess it to Jesus earnestly. You receive forgiveness, and then you get up and start walking. Now, as you're doing this, you can kind of even begin putting this together. There's then two ditches you got to avoid. That's even, I like the idea of a road, because on on either side, you've got a ditch that you could fall into. Um, Let me kind of just go over these with you. On one side, there's a ditch that I think some people get into where they never feel conviction over their sin, ever. Um, Maybe it's their sin in general. Maybe it's a specific one that they've just done so many times they've grown known to. And, And here's what I would tell you is, I fear for you. And I really don't put that lightly. Um, I, I was actually talking to so, someone over the past week or two who is in the opposite ditch we'll get here to in a second, where they almost feel ongoing over amounts of shame and guilt for things they've already confessed and repented of. And I, would, I told them, I feel for you, but I don't fear for you. It, it, because I fear for people who literally feel no conviction. They don't feel the weight of their sin. And I fear for them because I know where that can lead to. Eventually, And I also know that sometimes what God has to do to get you to wake up. I think of the story of the prodigal son where the prodigal son had to find himself at the lowest pits. And then it says he came to his senses. So my prayer for you if you're in the room is if you're there and you, you know, like, I just don't feel conviction. I, you've gone an ongoing sin without repentance. Here's what I'd say is pray that God would restore that conviction. Pray for it. And that seems weird to say, but just pray, God, help me to feel the weight of my sin. Lead me to repentance. Lead me to repentance. And I'm praying he'll open up your eyes today. But there's a second ditch, and I kind of already introduced it. There's a second ditch where I think a lot of people get into where they've genuinely felt the weight of their sin. They've genuinely confessed that sin to God and repented, but they feel ongoing shame and guilt for it. And even though God has long since moved on from it, they can't. And the picture I'd ask you, just right now, maybe in the picture in your minds, like if, if this is more you in the room, I right now want you to picture the cross. I actually got a cross right here behind me. If it helps you, you can just picture Jesus on it. But I, I want you to just pick, to picture Jesus right now on the cross. See his nail-pierced wrists and feet. See the crown of thorns that has been shoved into his head and then blood is just running down his face. 
see at the end the, the spear pierced into his side. Blood and water discussion out. If, if you're in here and you're thinking like, God hasn't forgiven me even though I've done all this and, and, and you aren't moving on, basically what you're doing is you're looking at Jesus in that moment and you're saying, that's really great what you did, but it's not enough. But what our text is saying today in Psalms and Colossians and what the whole Bible tells us, it is enough. So stop carrying a weight that Jesus died to carry for you. Um, my, my wife actually experienced this. I got her permission to tell this story. I don't always say that, but I just feel like some of these stories are pretty personal today, so I just wanted to know I didn't just do this without permission. Um, my wife and I, Amy, dated um, in college and um, got to a, a point in our junior year where I really felt like she was the one. Well, uh, for different reasons, we broke up, and she was just in a season where she was walking away from God and being distant from God. And uh, kind of doing her own thing for different reasons. Well, eventually she kind of got into the party scene, had too much to drink one night, and got pregnant. And in the months that followed, she just felt such incredible shame and guilt over it. Just thinking, oh, God, God couldn't forgive me for this. Or like, oh, this is just so awful. What changed was the moment she gave birth to Nate, our son. Um, I, he's, even though he's not my boy biologically, he's my boy. <laughs> when she gave birth, she looked at Nate and she realized, there is nothing this boy will ever do that can make me not love him. And she realized, that's how God sees me. Because if Jesus died on the cross to make his enemies, his friends, and his family, that means that all of us are now children of God. And she realized there is nothing God she could do to make God ever stop loving her or to forever look at her through the eyes of guilt and shame. So because of that, she needed to stop looking at herself that way. And so what do we do now with all this? Here's what I just I think there's different categories of people in the room. There might be some of you in the room, or there's maybe even people, if you're watching online or listening to this, you may be in here or listening to this, and you've never begun this relationship with Jesus I've mentioned a few times. Like, you haven't gotten on the road. And here's what I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, the Bible tells us, Scripture tells us so clearly, if you continue that way, the if in verse 3 that we hit earlier will not be an if. Like you will eventually have to stand before God and bear the weight of it. Like you will have to be held accountable for all of this and it will be on you. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus so that you wouldn't have to, so that he did it in your place. And my plead for you today is to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me. I don't want to do life my own way anymore. I want to walk with you. And then guess what? You're on the road. You're on the road. Maybe there's a people in here that were in the one ditch where we mentioned you just have not felt conviction for a period of time. I'm just, I just want to even just encourage you in a few minutes when we go to communion, just pray, God, would you give me that conviction? God, would you help me to feel the weight of my sin? Would you break me? Which is a, it's a scary prayer to pray. 
But in my experience, the lightest moments of my life have actually been where I felt convicted and broken in my sin, which is weird because you feel the crushing weight of it. But the reason I say the lightest moments is when I felt the crushing weight of it, I then got it off myself and gave it to Jesus and got lighter. And then there's another group in here that you just continue to live with the shame and the guilt. Let it go. See yourself the way God sees you because of what Jesus has done for you. And then here's the reality is, then all of us as we're walking through this road together, eventually we're going to make it to our heavenly home one day. And there's a promise for us. I didn't get to these verses, but now is the beautiful time to do it. Let me just hit these briefly. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Well, what are they hoping for? In the context they were actually hoping and waiting for, in the context they were actually waiting on a word from God that they were forgiven. Here's the good news for us this morning. Because we live on this side of the cross, we don't have to do that. We don't have to wait to hear we're forgiven. That was already said 2,000 years ago. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. It's done. Like it's paid for. You don't have to wait for a word from God that you're forgiven. If you are walking with Jesus, if you've received his grace, you're forgiven. Finally, fully, and forever forgiven. So, but there's another aspect of waiting, and that is iniquities, which you've seen this in this text a few times, not only refers to our sin, but it also refers to the consequences and ongoing consequences of our sin and the brokenness of the world. So they're waiting not only for God to forgive them, but also waiting for God to put things right. Watch what this says. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Redemption is often used not only of God forgiving sin, but of rescuing people from the consequences of their sins. This is how the psalm ends. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. So it says there was coming a day when not only will we not have to bear the penalty of our sin, because Jesus has already paid for that, we will be free from the presence and power of sin forever because we will be with God forever. And in the meantime, when we fall, we get up the same way we got on as we wait for that day when sin will be no more in us or in the world. Let's pray together. God, I just want to really even just pray through what we've talked about. Those first three verses really are just, it's the weight of our sin. And and, and I'm praying right now um, for people in the room or that are listening that they're not Christians, they're not followers of Jesus or whatever phrase they or we like to use. God, I pray that they would feel the weight of their sin. Not of the world's sin, not of friends' but of theirs. I pray that they would feel true conviction of the depths and the crushing weight of their sin. But God, use that not to drive them to complete despair, but simply to, try them to, to drive them to a place where they see their need for you, Jesus. So let them run to the cross, and may that be a place where they find relief. God, God, I pray, though, for the rest of the room that even as we, um, Lord, walk with you and we mess up, would you, God, help us to feel that? Lord, help us to never become callous or cold to our own sin, to our own failures. But God, now as we get to, as I just think of the, the other half of the psalm, help us never to stay there. Help us not to stay in the depths. You died so we could go to the heights with you. 
There is forgiveness. And I pray for every man and woman and boy and girl in this room and listening to my voice that they would know that and that they would receive that. And that because of that, now they would get up and keep walking with you today and the next week and month and years of their life. Thank you, Jesus, that this world of struggle with sin is not the final chapter. There's coming a day when it will be no more. And we long for it. In the meantime, we walk with you by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.